0: You're listening to 3 and 30 Takeaways for Moms, Episode 169 How to Be a Body Positive Parent. Welcome to 3 and 30, a podcast for moms who want to create more meaning in motherhood. Each 30 minute episode will feature three doable takeaways for you to try at home with your family this week. I'm your host, Rachel Nielsen. Thank you so much for being here. February is National Eating Disorder Awareness Month, and I'm thrilled to bring a true expert on this topic to the podcast today. I know we all want to raise kids with healthy self-image and body image, but that feels so much easier said than done. How do we teach them the value of health and caring for their bodies without encouraging an obsession with health or with their bodies? How do we teach them to trust themselves around food and to love their bodies no matter what size they are when we're raising them in a culture that is obsessed with diets and thinness? Today, I'm talking about these questions and more with Zoe Bisbing, a licensed therapist with specialties in eating disorders, body image concerns, and perinatal mental health. She holds a Master of Social Work from New York University and a certification in family based treatment from the Institute for Child and Adolescent Eating Disorders. She has also completed additional training in CBTE through the Center for Research on Eating Disorders at Oxford. Zoe is the co-founder of The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting resource through which she hosts The Full Bloom Podcast and speaks to groups of parents and professionals about how to help young people develop positive relationships with their bodies. A native New Yorker, Zoe lives in Manhattan with her husband, three children, and two beloved dogs. She says she is perpetually humbled by the challenges of applying parenting philosophies to real-life parenting. I know you're going to love my conversation with her. Before we jump into it, I want to say thank you to this month's podcast sponsor, Tubby Todd Bath Company, for making this important conversation possible. This is a company that really values and prioritizes the well-being of families, and it is an honor to partner with them. I first heard of Tubby Todd from my sister who struggles with debilitating eczema. We're talking eczema so bad that she has to bring her own sheets to the hospital when she gives birth because her skin is so sensitive that most laundry detergents cause hives and rashes. She has to be so careful about the products that come in contact with her skin and with the skin of her babies because unfortunately her kids inherited eczema too. My sister told me about Tubby Todd's all-over ointment as the best healing balm she'd found on the market that truly helped with her eczema without being a prescription-level steroid. She said it truly made a difference in her bad flare-ups, so I knew I needed to give it a try for my family's dry skin and for our cuts and bumps and bruises. Although we don't have eczema or other skin conditions, we have come to love this all-natural ointment, and it is the Tubby Todd product we couldn't live without. You can try all over ointment and so many other amazing bath products by going to tubbytodd.com and don't forget to use the code 3in30TT to get 15% off your order. That's 3in30TT for 15% off. And now onto the show. Here's my conversation with Zoe Bisbing about how to be a body positive parent. Enjoy. Zoe, welcome to 3in30.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, we have talked a lot on my podcast about eating disorders and body positivity and intuitive eating, mostly through the lens of how we as moms can better care for our own bodies and love and accept them because I have a history with eating disorders. And so I've talked quite a bit about my experience, but something that we have not really dove into is how to help our kids, how to help them to hopefully develop this better body positivity, self-image from the beginning so that they don't have to struggle like many women struggle in their adulthood. And many people have been asking for this episode. So I'm just so glad that you're here and you have so much professional expertise in this area. And I'm excited for us to learn from you how to raise kids who are body positive, intuitive eaters, who have a better chance at avoiding kind of the toxic diet culture wow. of our world, so thank you for being here.
1: Yeah, oh, I'm I'm glad to hear that there are folks in your community that are wanting this. It's always helpful to be reminded that yes, actually, people are interested in that work—not just heal themselves, but prevent the need for healing. Yes, and for the next generation.
0: Yes, and obviously, we can do everything possible. And sometimes our kids will still struggle. Even It's not our fault if our kids struggle with some of these issues necessarily, but we can sure give them a better foundation to hopefully avoid or heal quicker than we have healed if they have sort of this foundation underneath it.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Parents can be the most spectacular allies and healers of kids that have developed eating disorders. And there's a lot that's out of our control with respect to genetics and social cultural matters and things like that. So I always kind of give that almost as like a disclaimer, because sometimes we get into some of the things parents can do to protect and prevent and unintentional blame comes up, right? Yes. Um, You know what I mean?
0: Yes. And the last thing that we need is for a mom or a dad who has a child that's really struggling to then pile on top of that blame on themselves. That is not helpful. So yes, I'm glad we started with that. Let's dive into your first takeaway of how we as parents can set our kids up to hopefully have a positive relationship with their bodies and food.
1: Yeah. So my first takeaway is really, really important for everyone to hear and wrestle with which is to understand that health and weight are not one in the same. And this is an enormous misconception that most of us have. I think I even had, there are so many misconceptions that BMI is kind of this perfect metric of health and that the bigger the body, the less healthy the body. And I, I think increasingly people get that in mainstream ideas that you could be in a bigger body, but also very fit. But there are limits to the way people are able to kind of flex their minds around this issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it's a really important one because there are so many ways in which we talk just colloquially with our kids or with other grown-ups around kids to say things that are not intended to do anything other than maybe promote health, which as a value, you know, it's nothing wrong with valuing health, but there are ways in which folks talk about health in a way that ends up being quite oppressive and not uplifting and not inclusive enough. And so we never want kids to get the idea, oh, well, if I lose a few pounds, I'll be healthier. Yeah. Or, oh, mom gained some weight, so she's not healthy. Health and weight are not one and the same. And so how can we really make that clear to our kids to talk about how you can't actually tell much about someone's health by the way they look and know that in doing that, we're actually offering our kids an opportunity to be much more inclusive, open-minded, and compassionate towards all people. And Um, themselves. Uh, yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we haven't talked too much about health at every size. We've talked about intuitive eating on the show before, but there's a book health at every size by Linda Bacon. Um, if anybody wants to dive into this more, because I do think that there is some cognitive resistance. We're like, no, that's not true. Weight does correlate to health. Our instinct is that. And in this book, she walks through all of the research that shows actually it is not directly correlated. You can be very healthy and be in a bigger body. It's more about the way you care for that body movement and all those other things, but it's hard to accept it because of the media and the diet culture that we've all grown up with and even well-meaning doctors oh, and yeah. people saying the BMI chart and focusing on that or really encouraging you to lose weight if you're not within a certain range while not looking at like, well, my blood work is great and my blood pressure is great and all of these other things that I'm caring for my body. That is a better indicator of health.
1: It is. And I think the, the piece about health at every size that I really value in addition to what you're saying is that it really... Invites us to check the way that we also moralize around health because I am someone that personally I do value health and I want health for my kids and I want my family to value health behaviors. I want us to move. I want my kids to eat more vegetables. You know, like none of this is in and of itself is oppressive. But what we want to be careful about is not saying, well, if someone isn't as healthy, they are not as good. And the Health at Every Size movement really wants us to look at the bias that we bring to the table mm-hmm. and also appreciate that health is a resource. Some of us are going to have better access to it than others. And not all of us can afford a green juice, you know, not all of us have access to move our bodies in the way that. When Paltrow can. Like there are ways in which we don't always realize that we we can't expect the same kind of vision of health from everyone. It's just mm-hmm. not possible. And especially as we're trying to become much more cognizant of our own biases in life in general, we want to really think about health as something that we're not going to like lord over someone else or put someone down because they're not valuing health in the same
0: way we are. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. Yeah. Or And even ourselves to yeah. lord over ourselves. I think, totally. as I have mentioned, I've had struggles with body image and vacillating between like extreme restriction to binge eating and weight has changed dramatically over the last 20 years. And there have been times when I have felt like I'm a bad person because my health isn't where I would like it to be or my body doesn't look a certain way. And that is ridiculous. Like I am, a, I am a good person. I want to look at all of the things that I do that make me a good person and not feel like my body size is making me a bad person. And think about how much we want that for our kids. We want them to realize even if they do have health problems, even if they are in larger bodies, that first of all, they can still be healthy. And second of all, they're still good people, even if that is a struggle for them.
1: Totally. And it's so important to be explicit about that in our families and in the way we talk about this stuff with our kids, because the degree to which anti-fat bias exists in our culture, it's profound. There's so much stigma baked into just these words that we hear Mm -hmm. at the doctor all the time, right? Overweight, obese, These are not neutral descriptors, even though one of the things that the fat acceptance movement is really working on is to try to reclaim this word fat so that it could just be like fat, thin, blue, red, green, tall, tall, short, short. exactly. But fat is not a neutral word in our general social consciousness. It's just Mm -hmm. not. And this is really tricky because we say things like, well, we want to prevent obesity We want our kids to be healthy, happy, vibrant, moving, but when someone is labeled obese or overweight, with it comes this stigma and it makes it hard to then do what you're saying to to say, wait a minute, I'm a good person, regardless of the size of my body, because these words are so charged. And we can even look to research to really see examples of how self-concept in kids and certainly in grownups as well can really be negatively impacted just by a word like this mm-hmm. you know yeah.
0: and tell us about this study of doctors telling children that they were overweight or obese or not telling them
1: this was one of the more interesting research studies that i came across that came out of university of michigan and they were looking at what do these words do to kids in this experiment all the children involved were in what we'd consider larger bodies so that they would, if you looked at a BMI chart and BMI is a very controversial metric these days as it should be. Um, but they would all have been plotted in this sort of overweight obese category but half the kids went in for their well visit and weight wasn't mentioned. It was just like, you're doing great kid, like see you next year. And the other half were told, okay, here's where your weight is plotting. You're in the overweight category or you're in the obese category. And the kids that were told their weight status with these stigmatizing words went on to have poor health behaviors, meaning less movement, less activity and more negative self-concept you see can kind of drive that. And it can be almost come this self-fulfilling prophecy. And then you see that then these kids have less good health outcomes Mm -hmm. compared with the kids, same body shape, size, same category, Mm -hmm. but are told nothing, are not stigmatized in the appointment and are able to show that their health behaviors are better. They are more connected to that capacity to engage in health behaviors. And so this is happening constantly, right? With grownups that go to the doctor's office and have high blood pressure and are told to lose weight or told their weight status. But I think it's interesting to look at the research too, that shows that this Mm -hmm. does not predict good, even self-care behaviors because of the stigmatizing effect of just the language.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think there have been times when I have put off going to the doctor because I didn't want to have this conversation. I, I have a health condition that can be connected, correlated with weight. It's not necessarily cause, but it can be correlated. And there's times when I have put off seeing my specialist that I needed to see because this conversation is painful and I don't want to have it again. That is sad that we do that to people that they are not getting the care that they need because they feel stigmatized, they feel ashamed about their weight. So as parents listening to this, what if you have a child that is in a larger body and you are worried about it? You don't want them to be teased or, you know, I think none of us want to give our kids a label that is gonna negatively affect them and yet we also want to help them. I think it comes from a very genuine place where we're worried about our kids in larger bodies. What do we do with that? Mm
1: Yeah. No, it's a great question. It's a hard question too, because as a parent, you don't want your child to suffer. You know, you don't want weight-based bullying is the leading cause of bullying in schools. You want to protect your kids. And we do live in a, a mean culture where any kind of significant difference in appearance, it, it makes it harder. But what we really want to do as families to make it very clear what our values are here and to be really explicit, like in this first takeaway about health and weight are not the same. So you want to really make sure your kid knows that they are healthy, regardless of what their appearance is. You want your kid even to think they're healthier than they really are. Even if they aren't as healthy as they're thinking, because the healthier one thinks they are the better care they take of themselves. And so you really want to drill that down, maybe even extra for a child in a larger body, if you have a child in a larger body, you want to be doing extra work on your own anti-fat bias. Like Mm -hmm. if you're noticing like, Oh my gosh, I really don't want my kid to be in a bigger body because they're going to face bullying. But then actually this is bringing up stuff for me. And like, it's hard for me to look at them and know that I don't want my kid to be in a bigger body to be just super honest and compassionate with yourself about that, that there's no shame in that. It's natural that you may have your own internalized bias because like, hello, we all do. Yeah, um, we all do. We and it's all not our do. fault.
0: No. It's, the, it's the culture. It's the society we've grown up in.
1: And what you really want to do is be able to make sure that your kid that is in that larger body knows that whatever they hear on the outside, it does not reflect what we think here on the inside of our home. That child, if they are facing bullying, for example, you want to help support them through things like social skills, because we want to instill values and knowledge in our kids that you can't rely on trying to change as a means of controlling that negative stuff you're getting on the outside. because. Ultimately, and we, if we had more time, we could get into the weight science, right? But kids or grownups even, right, that try to lose weight, most of the time, it comes back plus more. So it's a counterproductive effort anyway, to try to lose weight intentionally, and it's a separate kind of can of worms to open up. But with kids in particular, we don't want them dieting. We want them moving and moving joyfully and eating freely and enjoying themselves. And we just want to help our kids in larger bodies with extra social support to make sure that they have the skills they need to be themselves in any conditions. And that can be really hard, right?
0: Yes. Yes. And I love what you said there about losing our own weight bias, working really hard on that we need to maybe work harder on that than we need to work on anything having to do with them. (laughs) Completely. When I read your, I purchased your ABC guide, Mm -hmm. which we'll talk about at the end as a great resource for parents that want to dive more into this work. But as I read through it, one thing that I loved is that you talked about that I, as a parent, need to be following more accounts of plus-size people, normalizing plus-size bodies and getting comfortable with that and following accounts of plus-sized athletes that disprove. This idea in my head that weight and health are connected, I need to disprove to myself by following these accounts and watching these people in bigger bodies doing amazing things with their bodies and how healthy they are. And so I'm teaching myself, as well as you mentioned in there, point out examples to your kids of people in larger bodies doing amazing things with their bodies and how they are healthy, even though they're in a larger body. So I think that our understanding of this principle will then radiate out <laughs> to how we treat them, how we talk about food, how we talk about health in our home, and that will bless them, even if we do nothing to try to like actually change their eating habits or anything having to do with that.
1: I completely agree.
0: Yeah. So what is your second takeaway?
1: So my second takeaway is to stay in your lane with regard to feeding. I think to just break it down really basic, as parents, we need to know what our job is when it comes to feeding our kids so that then they can do their job. Mm-hmm. And what this comes from, I did not make this up. This advice, if you will, comes straight from the Ellen Satter Institute. Have you
0: talked at all yeah. about we, this we, on the podcast? We have talked about the division of responsibility a couple of different times, but just give us a quick reminder.
1: Yeah, good. Well, when it comes to feeding, we, we want to ensure that Our kids are really learning from the sort of the inside, like the neck down, how to eat competently, meaning eat when they're hungry, stop when they're full, accept a variety of different foods, which as you know, it it doesn't happen all at once. It can take a while for kids to kind of decide on their own that they're going to sniff a piece of lettuce and then eventually accept a salad one day. But the idea is that our kids are going to learn how to be, quote, "good eaters. In ways that don't always occur to us, we often think of things like, well, eat your peas and then you can have your, your dessert. Or um, finish your plate and then this. Or you can't have this if you don't do this. And so what the division of responsibility says is, no. I'm going to give you a really basic guide to follow. The parent is responsible for deciding what's being served, when it's being served, and where. And the kid's responsibility is to decide what of that to eat and whether or not to eat. Mm-hmm.
0: So, And how much of it to eat. How much right? of it,
1: exactly. Yes. What of it, how much of it, whether or not. So that means that your kid may just opt out that meal. Now, disclaimer, we're not talking about kids that we're suspecting are really restricting their intake that may benefit from an assessment for like a restrictive eating disorder, We're not talking about that. We're talking really basic. And Mm -hmm. so this blueprint is really good because that means, okay, me as the parent, I can decide what I'm putting on the table and when and where I'm choosing the table. And then I'm not getting into a power struggle with my kid about what to eat or how much or saying, okay, you can't have this if you don't have this. I'm letting them tune into their own internal wisdom. And I know you said you've talked about intuitive eating on the podcast before, and this is what intuitive eating opportunity looks like for kids, not eating, oh, I better finish my plate so X will happen or Y will happen, but rather, hmm, what do I want right now? And they don't necessarily know they're asking that question, but their bodies are getting this chance to respond internally as opposed to using any kind of rule.
0: And in your outline, you talked about juice in your house. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. I think this links to the idea that because we all live in diet culture, we all have our own little rules that we were following once upon a time or a stigma people have about like processed foods or sugary foods. And for me, I noticed that juice was one of these foods that because I didn't really grow up with it, that I never really brought it into the home. And so my kids weren't getting experience with juice in a safe, structured way. I wasn't using juice in my division of responsibilities. And so what I noticed was my kids, when they went to birthday parties, would go like wild for juice. So there'd be like juice boxes out and they weren't just having a juice box. They were like going for two or maybe three, which isn't the end of the world. Like it didn't freak me out, but I noticed And I was like, what is going on with this? Oh, well, they don't have experience with it. Juice is too sensationalized for them. And so what I decided to do was bring juice intentionally into my home and then serve it to them in the context of this division of responsibility. So I would decide this wasn't like kitchens open, kids, come on in open, grab a juice whenever you want. That's not how we do it here. But at a mealtime, I would add juice to the options that they could choose from, I was able to bring it in, sort of desensationalize it, allow them opportunities to enjoy it in a way that was within this framework. And what I started to notice is that sometimes they didn't even finish it. I think the evidence for the the fact that that's happening and that they're tuning into their internal regulation system is, is evident by the fact that they're sometimes leaving it behind.
0: Does that
1: illustrate the the point? Yes,
0: it absolutely does. A couple of things that stood out to me while you were talking was, what are the foods or drinks that we decided for whatever reason are like bad or not worth the empty calories, quote unquote, those types of things and sort of question, why do I believe that? Because I I think I'm the same with juice. I'm like, well, that's not worth the calories. Well, why am I putting that on my children? Getting clear with yourself about the things that you've sort of put on your bad list and asking yourself why and asking yourself if it would be okay for them to, your kids have gained some experience with those things. Um, But also another thing I think as a parent, I love this idea of letting their body guide. But as a parent, especially with kids with certain personalities, it does seem like, will they ever stop? Mm -hmm. I have a child that I really don't know if this child would stop if I didn't force them to stop eating the brownies or the cake or the juice boxes. You know, this is a child that I'll find like a million wrappers hidden in the side of the bed Mm -hmm. for something that I haven't made off limits. I haven't made it sensationalized. So why is this child doing that?
1: hmm <clears throat> I wish I could sort of just give you the answer to that, but I hear you that sometimes it, it feels like this blueprint almost like doesn't cut it or like isn't good enough. There are kids that are going to be pushing limits harder than other kids. Um, and I think the key here is to be able to ask ourselves, is this kid pushing limits or is this about food? Mm. Because Sometimes it's not about food, it's about limits. And sometimes it is about food and or it's about a kid sort of soothing themselves using food. And if that's the case, it's just good to be aware, right? Because then you might need some supports around that. Um food is like a natural way people soothe themselves. It's like nothing wrong with soothing oneself through food. It's just if it's the only strategy or if it causes distress we need to help them
0: build other coping skills.
1: Completely, completely. And so I I would say that, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I found lollipop rappers in their rooms and I was like, "What? I'm doing everything right. Like what are these rappers doing here? I think it's my job to get curious about the hiding. It's your job to get curious about the hiding and try to engage our kids in conversation about it. But I think that We need to also check any anxiety we have about what would happen if they ate a lot of brownies or what would happen if they drank Mm. a lot of juice Um, because I want to really think about this as limit setting, not so much food management. Or Mm -hmm. sweets management.
0: And I do want to point out that this division of responsibility, it's not like I think parents can be resistant to this and think it doesn't actually work. It's not like this is just one expert who has taught this. This is pretty much universally accepted and taught by all feeding specialists, people who have studied this in depth. So, as much as we as parents might think, no, that can't be true. The research bears this out over and over and over again. And yes. so give it a, give it a chance. You know, I have talked to a number of different people eating specialists for this particular child, as well as myself, they all teach this, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so give it a chance and see if it works.
1: And, and I think what you're saying is a really important reminder to end this, this takeaway on, because it takes time. Um, mm-hmm. but to really give it time. And again, to keep checking your own anxiety because our own worries, oh, this isn't going to work. Oh, they're going to never stop. Oh, they don't have it in them. You know, there's something wrong with my kid that they'll never be able to regulate. This is as big a problem as the fact that, you know, yes, that, that that's coming out in into the mix for
0: sure. Yes. And I think that leads well into our last takeaway, which is kind of, I think it's not only a takeaway, it's a great final thought, I feel like, for this episode. So tell us about that.
1: Yeah. My third takeaway is it's never too early or too late to create a body positive home. And I really mean this. For a new parent of a baby, you can create this like idyllic home base. You get to start from scratch and you can spend time looking inward and you can kind of prepare for this. But the reality is even if you have older kids, especially if you have older kids and you're sort of taking in these new concepts about, okay, I don't want to think about health and weight as the same anymore. And I want to change the way I handle feeding and I don't want to have good foods and bad foods, but rather I want all foods to fit in my home. I want my kids to develop competency skills. The older your kid is, the the bigger opportunity you have to actually just talk to them about what you're doing. So Mm. for the parent of a really young child or a baby, an infant, this is very much inward focused work, right? Challenging your own biases and thinking about some of the things that, research tells us we can do. I think more specifically, you can declare your home a body talk free zone and focus on really valuing people's intrinsic qualities rather than appearance focused ones. And you can really sort of prime yourself and your environment. But as your kids get older, if you start to notice, oh, we've been doing that, you can have conversations with them. You can say like, we're going to do things differently. Look, we used to have this way of feeding. I'm learning a lot. We're having new rules. Like this is how we're doing feeding now. Or, you know, look, I'm noticing that I have a lot of anti-fat bias and I'm challenging that. I want you to know about that. I'm curious, do you? You can, mm-hmm. you can really get into this. Like what's the kind of talk like at school? And as our family, this is something that we really want to value because we want to think about all human beings. And We want to lift people up, you know, and really kind of lean into almost a social justice value that you might adopt as a family or integrate this into. There's so much opportunity, no matter how old your child is, to do this work with them and for them.
0: Yes. That is so hopeful and so important. I'm so glad we're ending on that note that parents walk away and realize you didn't mess your kids up. It's not too late. You can always start together to create a more body positive home. And you have some great resources that people can start with. So why don't you tell us about where they can get more of your work?
1: Yeah, so I think that you were kind to mention that you had purchased the ABC guide to body positive parenting, which really is an A to Z guide that gives tons of resources and little things you can do to help your children fully bloom. And you can find that on the website, fullbloomproject.com slash ABC guide. We do have a podcast that serves mostly as a resource to go and get some of the questions that we pose in the ABC guide fleshed out in like an audio form. But Mm -hmm. I do think that if there's one resource I'd love for folks to know about, it's that ABC guide available on our website.
0: Okay, great. Yeah, and each page is a letter of the alphabet with a different principle of this work. It's so well done, and I will link that and your podcast in the show notes, and thank you so much for your time today and your expertise that you brought to 3 and 30. Oh, it's
1: such a treat to be here.
0: I'm so grateful Zoe joined us today to shine a light on the power we have as parents to create a body-positive home and undo the beliefs and practices that we may have gained from growing up in a society steeped in diet culture and anti-fat bias. To recap, the three takeaways are, first... Health and weight are not one in the same. It's perfectly fine to value health as a family, but we need to teach our kids that you can't tell how healthy someone is by looking at them. Many people in larger bodies are very healthy, and it's important to point out examples of that to our kids and to ourselves to challenge our biases. I recently did that with an Athleta magazine that came in the mail that showed amazing athletes of all shapes and sizes. I sat down and I showed my kids and said, look at how all of these people have different sizes of bodies and they can move them and use them and look at how strong and flexible they are. I also really appreciated Zoe's point that health should never be used to judge, oppress, or determine the value of an individual because health is a resource. Some of us have better access to it than others. Second, stay in your lane with regard to feeding. Body positive parents strive to take the morality out of food and believe that all foods, candy and carrots alike, can fit into a healthy diet. They empower their children through encouraging joyful movement and supporting their capacity to self-regulate their dietary intake. Remember Ellen Satter's division of responsibility. Parents are in charge of when, where, and what food is served, but kids are in charge of whether or not they eat and how much they eat. And third, finally, and possibly most importantly, it is never too early or too late to create a body-positive home. For parents of kids of all ages, your work is really to focus on looking inward at your own relationship with food, your body, and diet culture. You have an opportunity to think about your own biases, particularly your anti-fat bias, and to start challenging some of those. The more you can work on this yourself, the more protective your home environment will be for your kids. And don't be afraid to talk to them, especially your older kids, about this work that you're doing within yourself. And telling them that you want to change the way you've done things in the past to be more body, body positive it is never too late to impact your children for good friends this is dense important stuff if some of the concepts in this episode are brand new to you or hard to wrap your head around that's okay listen again talk to people you trust read the experts and let's work together on building a more body positive culture that promotes true health emotional and physical health for all of our kids You're doing a great job, and I hope you have an amazing week with your family.